Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I am doing great because we are talking about one of North America's coolest plants, the Kunti, Zamia integrifolia. It has the wonderful distinction of being the most northerly cycad in the world. It's a fascinating little plant with an amazing biogeographic history, but also a cultural history that helps explain its history on this continent. It's also a wonderful conservation success story that involves everything from botanical gardens to landscapers and the general public, and I love those. I don't want to spoil any of the thunder because I have Dr. Patrick Griffith of the Montgomery Botanical Center in Miami, Florida here today to tell us the story. He and his colleagues have done fascinating work on this plant, and as a botanical center, they're doing amazing things for palm and cycad conservation. I'll let him tell you all about it, so how about we just jump right into it? Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Patrick Griffith. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Patrick Griffith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but first, let's introduce yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Patrick, and I am director of a botanic garden that's in Miami, Florida. It's called Montgomery Botanical Center, and we focus on palms and cycads. Excellent. Those are two very fascinating groups, uh, very different from each other <laughs> in fundamental ways, but superficially kind of similar. So they move together, kind of fun. And, uh, you know, it's a botanic garden that really has a strong emphasis on research and conservation collections. So among gardens, we put a lot more investment into managing the collection, managing the data of that collection, and probably a little less investment in like public engagement, things hmm. like that. So, uh, People locally think of it as a hidden gem. Nice. Uh, I had a field trip here today, for example, and a lot of the parents of elementary school field trip, a lot of the parents said, wow, I've lived in Miami my whole life and I've never been here before. Huh. So kind of off the radar, but uh, internationally, we're known as a place for palms and psychedelics. That is really cool. And I got to commend you for taking a different approach to what a botanical garden is and does from day to day. I mean, usually it's appeasing guests comes first and then the plants are almost secondary not to say that that's you know flawed in any way but it is a unique position to be in and i applaud your efforts with both these amazing plant groups but also just the the infrastructure you all have built to do good by the world of plants by contributing but also showcasing that's rad yeah thanks yeah it's a lot of fun i mean it's uh i feel like i have my dream job <laughs> really like working with plants and the group of people that I work with here is fantastic. And, uh, you know, we have less visitors than a typical botanic garden, but I'm always thrilled to see people here. And, you know, we never turn a person away. Always glad when somebody comes through the gates because, you know, it's great to talk about plants. Sure, sure. And so yeah. with that in mind, what brought you to the plant world? I mean, is this something that interested you since you were young or did you kind of follow into it through a career or education option? Yeah. So um, I think I always liked plants as a kid. Nice. I was always interested in taking them apart. That was the main thing. And, you know, I look at kids now and I see a lot of kids do that. You know, you have a leaf or a flower, you sort of pull it apart and you look at the different parts and it's interesting. And uh, as a child, I grew up in many places. 
And so when I went to different places, one of the things I noticed is this place has different plants in another place. You know, things look different, but you realize that why a mountain looks different here than it looks here is the plants growing on it are quite different. Mm -hmm. They make different textures, different colors. So I got interested in that kind of aspect of why different plants grow in different places. And uh, it's just something that was always fascinating. But what happens to most people in our field, uh, when you show an aptitude for the natural sciences, you get pushed into, in high school, they say, great, you like science, you like biology, you're going to be a physician. Yep. Right? <laughs> so I went to college uh, with that, you know, being told that that was what I was going to do. And I took those sorts of courses and they were fine. Met lots of nice people. It's great. Uh, but what happened is as I was going forward in that, I took a botany class and uh -oh. the botany class that I took was an intro to botany. Great class. This was back when colleges had botany departments. Right. You remember this. And uh, the professor's name was Jim Mouseth. He's written a lot of textbooks. Nice. Anatomist. Yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, this material really speaks to me. It's very interesting. We're just taking apart plants and talking about how they're put together. And then uh, I, we took the first exam and in taking that exam, many of my friends uh, in the class said, wow, that was terrible. What a hard exam. This is going to be very difficult. And I walked out of there feeling like I could grasp the material easily and it came naturally. So I thought this is a time for me to kind of switch over. So nice. I officially changed my major, started working in different laboratories as an undergrad. And I just really haven't looked back. This is pretty much what I've done for a number of decades now. That is awesome. And I could probably put money on the table and say there are a ton of listeners right now that are in the same position at some point in their life where you get pushed in biology. Let's be a doctor. Doctors make a ton of money. That's all there is to life. Right. And <laughs> it's a shame. But I think, you know, the tide is changing. People are paying a little bit more attention to the natural world, especially. But plants also uh, and I hope more people get to kind of experience what you experienced and and make some form of career out of it. Yes, I feel like I've been very fortunate. And, you know, in this field, you meet lots of great people. So I've had a lot of good mentors. But the other thing to kind of say about the career path that I had is it wasn't a straight line, you know, <laughs> going to going to graduate school. What again, you're kind of uh, taught, OK, you're going to be a professor once you finish this program. <laughs> And so I was kind of, you know, pushed in that direction. But then I realized what I really like doing is working with plants and working with people. And you can do that in a college. You can do that in many different career fields. But I spent some time working for the Forest Service and mm. thought that was fantastic. I could have stayed there. It was really great. Uh, but then I really thought working in a botanic garden is something I'd like to do after I retire. Mm. Um, but I saw there was an open position and applied for it. And I've been in this world. And I think this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life, probably. That's excellent. I love hearing that. And it's interesting, not only the world you fell into career-wise, but the plant groups that you fell into career-wise. And I don't know what sort of historically your research interests were, but were palms and cycads something that was on your radar? Or is it kind of like you were served up a plate and you're like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little from column A, a little from column B. What happened uh, was throughout my... Uh, you know, early days of doing this, I was fortunate to get positions working for different professors and different consulting jobs throughout undergraduate and graduate school. And I remember being in the field quite a bit. And if we came across, I had this fantastic job 
when I was an undergrad, uh, chemical engineers had a contract to characterize vegetation around cities, hmm. but they didn't understand vegetation. So they hired <laughs> me and they, they literally drove me around in a van and I would call out the names of trees and the DBH, like hmm. diameter. And we we're doing this in Houston and Dallas and Austin. And uh, it was fun, um, you know, especially as a young botanist, it's thrilling to be able to do this work. But whenever I came across these cycads in people's yards, I thought that is an unusual plant. I really like that one. And going back through old photo albums, I took a lot of photos of the cycads. Hmm. And then with the palms, same thing. I was fascinated by them. You know, they kind of evoke the tropics. They're really interesting. Uh, in a lot of places in the U.S. at the southern edge, you can grow many different palm species. So I was seeing them used in horticulture. Uh, did a couple of little research projects on palms, but uh, you know you have to pick sort of a um, a plant group to work with right. in systematics for evolution. I ended up working with cacti, huh. and that was kind of my main focus. Uh, but then you know I kind of came back to palms, came back to cycads, and that's where I've been uh, working on the majority of my career. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, people think they get siloed or get stressed about picking something and being like, oh, I have to do this the rest of my life. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can apply what you've learned to a lot of different systems. And, you know, careers like yours are a great example of that. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, uh, I had a little bit of time I spent working with orchids and it's hmm. a fascinating world. Amazing. Lots of interesting people in that world. Incredible plants, good collectors. And, you know, you could easily devote a lifetime to that. Uh, same with cacti, you know, huge societies focused on cacti, succulents, bonsai. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, but palms and cycads, those are two very, very different worlds and really interesting communities and lots of interesting problems. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, you know, could use a bit more of a spotlight. So kudos for choosing that direction or, you know, finding that direction, I guess. But it is. I, I want to go to something you said earlier in the conversation here where you talked about very different plant groups, but superficially there is some similarity. And the reason we connected was your work on cycads first and foremost, not to downplay any of the other work you've done. But I, I find it funny as a plant person to think of <laughs> there are a lot of palms called palms. There's also a lot of cycads called palms. <laughs> and Absolutely, unfortunately, yeah. cycads uh, are, are more of the obscurity uh, and, and oftentimes more threatened than a lot of other species, though, not to weight the threatened status. So yeah. the cycads are especially fascinating group because they kind of represent a hearkening back to when gymnosperms were doing a lot more on this planet. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what's really compelling about them for me. You know, you think about this plant, you see it and especially like a cycus, you look at it and the morphology of it suggests exactly the same morphology that a dinosaur would be looking at you know, 100 million years ago, walking around looking for something to eat. And here's the same shape. You know, it's amazing. They've conserved this for so long. Yeah, I, I love thinking of sort of the physics behind why plants look the way they do, but also the ecological pressures. And one of the things I read about a lot when I'm looking up different cycads is just the, the, their chemistry is so wildly often toxic. And I'm, you know, you can't help but make that connection to times past like what was going on in the evolutionary history of these lineages that resulted in some of the most intense defense mechanisms in the plant world let alone all of the other neat things they're doing yeah i totally agree it's it's fascinating to think about this particularly with the genus psychus 
was talking to an expert in that area of the neurochemistry and the toxins. And it is apparently a toxin that evolved with the dinosaurs. Wow. This is a one line of thinking. And it's because a dinosaur is a gigantic beast. Uh, it's, it's not going to be deterred by any kind of spines or anything like that. It's just got these big teeth. But it, what it does have is this weak point, which is a tiny little brain. So it doesn't take a big dose of neurotoxin to knock it out. That's the idea. Wow. That's so cool. And so, you know, as, as obscure as they can be to sort of the common world of, of understanding of plants, psychheads do have their own research groups attached to them. But they're also distributed among a lot of different areas of the world. And so was it hard to try to find a pathway within sort of the biogeography of psychheads? Or was it really just what was on the availability list for the research you wanted to do? So uh, for me, what we're charged with, uh, you know, at our botanic garden, we have a mandate to uh, try to conserve diversity of plants through ex situ means, but also supporting in situ conservation. So that that's kind of uh, why my research tends to be in the conservation realm. Mm. Uh, but we're also interested in biogeography. Uh, we're interested in plant diversity generally. And one of the best ways to think about and organize that diversity is geographic. So that's that's why we think a lot about that. We also want to represent the geographic breadth of uh, cycads in our garden. So th- we're always we're, we're always using maps to plan, you know, yeah. about what we're going to do. Uh, but I, I think yeah, maybe that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good answer to it because it, it kind of pulls the curtain back on how de- these decisions get made. I mean, you could almost paralyze yourself with inaction trying to think of like, okay, where do we put our coins in the most? And sometimes it's just a matter of like, okay, what do we got? What can we grow? And luckily you being near Miami or in Miami is great climate wise, because I'm sure that opens the door to cultivation. And when you mention ex situ collections, I mean, that is one of the ways for groups like cycads that this kind of conservation makes any headway yeah absolutely i totally agree i think that the in situ pressures are so huge on these plants right now habitat destruction is a big deal but there are collectors still that really want to have these plants and so there's poaching uh people will actually dig up big plants and put them on a black market and there's been even some very famous sting operations where they caught uh the bad guys before, but people still do it. Yeah. You know, you can see evidence of it. So you're absolutely right. Growing the plants in gardens, it helps a lot. It's not the the end measure because you have to conserve the pollinators, you have to conserve the habitat. All of those things are important. But as a stopgap measure, it's it's critical to grow up in the gardens. The other thing is for us here, we realized we have a land site and we have expertise at growing plants. Mm. That's the best contribution that we as a botanic garden can make to the conservation of the group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, finding your strengths and there's no sort of like umbrella recipe that's going to work across the board. You just kind of find groups of people that can take different stabs at different angles at this. But when I got into the world of psychads, and mind you, it is a superficial got into the world of psychads comparatively, uh, you know, it was one of those things where it felt like everything I was interested in was very far away from where I was living at the time. But then I learned of a little psychad growing here in North America. And my mind was blown because I could then travel within my own country to places like Florida and see this plant. Uh, And lo and behold, you've done some work on this. And this is what I know is the Kunti or Zamia. The last I checked, it's Integrifolia. Yes, that is correct. That's the Kunti plant. And it's a a fascinating part of our flora here. 
Uh, and we do call it Zamia integrifolia right now. But looking back, if you look at the synonymy, I think there have been nine or ten different names <laughs> applied to it over the years. Yeah. Uh, but integrifolia seems to be the consensus right now. Awesome. And what is this plant all about? I mean, again, it's here in North America. It's in the United States. You don't even have to go to Mexico to see this plant yes. if you're not already living in Mexico, that's to be said. Yeah. But uh, w- what's this plant all about? Where would you find it in North America? Yeah, so it's basically in Florida. And there was a time, there's actually a few specimens that have been made over the years where it was known in Georgia, Whoa. just uh, very far southern Georgia. Uh, but we've looked for it there. We think it's probably extirpated from there. There's a few reports of it nowadays, but we feel like they're naturalized hmm. from horticulture. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating plant because it is basically the northernmost cycad. Nice. Uh, cycads are a pretty tropical group. It's not a big group. It's a small group of plants, really, if you think about how old they are. But of the cycads, there's two that get pretty far north. Um, one of them is our kunti plant, same integrifolia. The other one is Cycus revoluta. And that's one that you see very commonly in horticulture because it's a little more cold tolerant. Right. And so what kind of habitats would the Kunti have been in historically and where are they kind of, I, 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 if we're talking about it, it's probably not doing so well at times. Uh, you know, where today is it largely existing habitat-wise? So habitat-wise, uh, it seems to me like we see it in uh, pine forests. And in this part of Florida, in pine rocklands, you do see it. Hmm. Uh, but they, they like to grow under pines. Uh, they also like to grow under oaks, uh, live oaks and hmm. uh, scrub oaks, things like that. Uh, in general, they grow well in Florida in places that aren't too wet. They like a lot of drainage. Okay. And is this a long lived species that kind of does things slowly? I mean, that's a kind of a trend with a lot of endangered plants is it, it tends to be yes. the ones with the slow life cycles. So it's interesting. I would characterize it as slow relative to a general plant out there, like a wildflower or a weed, okay. something like that. It's It has a slower life cycle than something like that. But among cycads, I think it's probably the fastest one. And that was something fascinating we found out by growing it in the garden. Uh, you could grow plant and within just a few years, you could get it to maturity where it would cone and start producing seeds. Oh, wow. And I think that's been important to the plant, the species, uh, as it's sort of come back from this uh, nearly extinct status it had in the state. Yeah, that's exciting because it kind of does represent a, a, a conservation success story that involves, you know, a lot of people, public even, you know, beyond this idea of just keeping things going in in sort of the scientific world or the botanical garden world. Like the public sectors had a big role to play in getting this species back on the landscape you know, in artificial settings, but also in, in more, you know, naturalized settings, right? Totally agree. I mean, it's been great. It's a popular plant. I think people really like it. It's got a beautiful look. It has a perfect application. It's like a foundation plant or a border. Uh, I've seen people do creative things with it. Horticulture. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's great. It's a really nice plant. It has a good story. So when you plant it somewhere, it also has this really amazing butterfly that's tightly associated with it. Damn. So whenever people are growing this, they're off actually creating habitat for this butterfly as well. It's the perfect conservation sort of ecological story to tell in the native plant movement because it was really two species brought back in that way because, yeah, yeah that obligate relationship. But, you know, you, again, can't cover every aspect of this plant's natural history, evolution, ecology, that sort of stuff. So where did you start to look at this plant from a research perspective? So, uh Research-wise, we were interested in this plant 
in terms of its biogeography and its relationships to, to other populations of Zanian. Okay. And uh, my collaborators and I, uh, and I really got to you know give a shout out to these guys, Alan Miro, Javier Francisco Ortega, Michael Colonhe. Uh, these are the real experts in this field uh, that I've been working with and that kind of enabled us to do this work. Uh, but we had this, and Dennis Stevenson uh, in New York, we had this really big, uh, large-scale project looking at zamias throughout the Caribbean. Mm. And there's a group of uh, cycads called the Caribbean zamias. Hmm. Uh, they form what's known as a monophyletic group. They're all close relatives with each other. And uh, they've been taxonomically super confusing. <laughs> Biogeographically, there's interesting hypotheses about where this one came from and how it's related to that one. And it's been just a huge mess. And thought we'd approach that by looking at it with uh, population genetic data. Cool. Uh, so lots and lots of sampling of many, many plants throughout Florida, but also throughout the Caribbean. Uh, for that, we did a lot of work in the Bahamas, Dominican Republic, Cuba, and uh, uh, places like that. Jamaica, Cayman Islands. Uh, the work in Cuba, you could write a, a, a huge... Uh, story about that one because it was uh it took us nine years to get permission wow. to work in cuba uh the governments of cuba and the united states don't get along well yeah but i can say that the botanists uh in those places get along famously Good. great guys uh really enjoyed working with them uh but yeah that's kind of how we came to it we were just it was part of a larger story thinking about evolution and systematics throughout the caribbean but what we realized looking at the florida plants is there's a lot of them here many populations and the relationships among those populations are pretty fascinating. Hmm. Uh, they look different in different parts of Florida. And there's been many authors over the last uh, hundred years or so that have suggested that maybe it was introduced here by people. Oh, And if not introduced by people, certainly uh, used by pe people and maybe uh, moved around or repeatedly introduced different places. And so we thought, you know, this is, Kind of an interesting thing and perhaps you could approach those questions with population genetic data wow Whew, yeah i i love that bigger picture perspective that you kind of hinted at by collaborating with people that have studied different aspects of this you really get a more complete idea than just someone being like well that's kind of interesting but <laughs> it also fascinates me to ask these deep time you know, relatively large geographic space kind of questions with molecular data. I love this idea of big down to the, you know, the molecular scale. And, you know, anatomy is one thing. I do not want to downplay that. But to look at the genetic relationships, to share DNA and knowing what we know about building phylogenies, looking at molecular time clocks, it just, it, it's the almost like you couldn't have asked for a more perfect way to kind of ask these questions, right? Methodologically. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it's been great. And this, this project, it, it, the broader project has been so informative in, in many different areas. Uh, my collaborator, Michael, uh, part of the team here, he put together a phylogeny of the whole genus and uh, answered exactly those kind of questions about diversification, history, uh, biogeography. I mean, it's really interesting stuff. But uh, for this project, we were approaching it with both phylogeographic and phylogenetic approaches and population genetic approaches. And it's because, you know, these are kind of the evolution of these is happening at a scale that's kind of between those two approaches. Hmm. Uh, but it was the population genetics that really informed uh, what we found out with the Florida plants. Right. And so this hypothesis of, 
humans were involved on some level is fascinating. What indication was there to even arrive at that hypothesis before you go about testing it? Yeah, so there's a, a few different uh, ideas that were out there. And uh, about 100 years ago, there was a guy named uh, Small. He was a botanist from New York Botanical Garden and uh, an expert on palms, an expert on cycads. And he traveled around throughout the United States looking at these things. Uh, fascinating time to be a botanist, I think. Um, but he was out there and uh, he said a bunch of different things. One of the things he noted was that it was really hard to find the plants in Florida at that time. Uh, there were very few of that. And I'd love to talk about the reason for that. Sure, yeah. But we're talking about, you know, early peoples. The other thing that he noted um, was that the plants were different in different parts of Florida where he could find them. And uh, one thing he saw was there, there seemed to be some plants of a certain morphology that were very closely associated with shell movements. So these old archaeological deposits of, uh, you know, refuse and trash and sometimes built into monuments. But for native peoples that lived here, even in the Holocene, uh, they these plants were only found on those shell mittens. Hmm. So we thought maybe there's association there. Uh, and Stevenson, uh, much later, maybe about 60 years after that, uh, 40 years ago, was writing about this and he thought perhaps there were repeated introductions because he was looking at this from a morphological and anatomical standpoint. Maybe there were repeated introductions of different morphotypes onto the peninsula. Wow. And uh, what could introduce them, but people, that would be uh, something. And the reason for that is it was well-documented very commonly up to about a hundred years ago that the Seminoles uh, who live in Florida would use the plants to make a, uh, a bread-like product. Oh. And you have to treat it very carefully. You have to leach out <laughs> those, those neurotoxins. Yeah. But if you do that, you actually end up with a staple uh, food that can be directly sourced from the environment and just harvested. It's, you don't have to grow it as a crop, yeah. at least in that era. Right. That is fascinating. And you, know, you think about Florida today, you get out into the wilds, it is a tough place to be a human (laughs) and then you think of like oh the creature comforts you get to return to but you know early indigenous peoples were in this region for thousands and thousands of years and any staple food crop is going to be just a boon to the existence in a very unforgiving tropical climate i mean you can't emphasize we love going to the tropics today as sort of this recreational relaxing thing but has not always been the case for humanity yeah you're you're absolutely right about that you know, the history of the Seminoles is uh, is quite fascinating, their use of the plant. And they they actually, in this difficult environment in South Florida, were able to uh, thrive and uh, actually avoid defeat by the American army for a long time by being able to source uh, this carbohydrate directly wow. from the environment. And so the thought that they were either repeatedly introducing the species, moving it around at the very least, suggests that, you know, they're was a source population they were bringing it over from um you know is there indication or was there a hypothesis that hey maybe the kunti didn't originate on the peninsula and came over from the caribbean like with that other group i think i think ultimately uh it did at some point you know plants have to sometimes come from somewhere right right um so it probably did come from the caribbean but the question is was that before people or after people and people do it and uh, the evidence we have so far is you know, not, let, not yet published, but it appears that the closest relatives of 
this plant in Florida are ones in the Bahamas. Okay. What's what's fascinating about that is in the Bahamas, there's actually archaeological evidence that directly ties Zamia starch grains onto the uh, dental calculus, aka Whoa. the teeth of fossil skulls of uh, native peoples that live there. So wow. that's direct evidence. These people were eating the zamias. They even find that in places where the zamia is not extant anymore. Uh, there's also some very elegant archaeological studies that show that it may have even been grown as a crop in the Bahamas. Huh. So the, the ancient Bahamians had this as a, a food and the ancient Floridians did as well. And we know that uh, those are the closest relatives, those two zamias. So maybe it came from Mohammed's. Wow. Fascinating. And, you know, the other part of the molecular side to the study is you get an indication of maybe how long ago an estimate of time frame. I mean, are we talking a couple thousand, 10,000? Like, was this a Pleistocene thing when that land was, the land area was much greater among the peninsula and the Caribbean and the Bahamas? Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. I'd have to go back to Michael Colonia's work to actually look at that. But okay. I, I'm going to look that up because okay. I think... Uh, that's one thing that we haven't considered is, you know, exactly what was the timing of that split between Zamian tegrifolia in Florida and the close relatives in the Bahamas. If it was uh, during the Pleistocene, during the Holocene, then that would lend credence to this fact, uh, to the idea that uh, they were brought by people. Wow. Fascinating. I, it's just that example of science that comes up time and time again. <laughs> you get a little piece of answers and now you're like, okay, now we have like 30 more questions. <laughs> to go for here <laughs> yeah exactly no it's 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 fascinating and so with that in mind you know you mentioned population genetics you mentioned that a lot of these populations look very different from each other when you started to look at the dna comparisons among the various populations you were studying what kind of patterns started to show themselves so uh the most interesting thing is that there was one place in the genetic pattern that emerged as kind of the center of all of the relationships, uh, the network of relationships among these in Florida. And that's a place called Crystal River. Mm. And what's interesting about that is that was a way to think about that is that was sort of the capital city of Florida around the year zero. 2000 years ago, uh, the, the inhabitants of that place had a huge set of monumental shell mounds, a thriving civilization, and the archaeological evidence shows that they basically controlled trade networks throughout the peninsula. So people were bringing stuff from throughout the peninsula to Crystal River, and they were taking it from Crystal River to other places throughout the peninsula, more than any other place. Wow. But what's amazing is the pattern of relationships for the genetics of Zamian matches that exactly. Wow. So the best explanation for that is people move the plants around just like they moved all their little trinkets and artifacts. Dang, that is amazing to see. I mean, two lines of evidence just overlap like that. It, it, you know, I think a lot of scientists listening are pretty jealous to have that kind of data available to make a much more sound conclusion about what you're going to test. Uh, we, we were thrilled when we saw that pattern and uh, it, it was interesting too because it, it goes against what you would think based on the um, natural dispersal dynamics of the plant. Mm. Uh, if you look at the uh, the seed dispersal, the seeds are heavy and they're sort of unpalatable, so they don't go very far from the plant. 
there are people that did studies and they, they showed that they maybe go a maximum of four meters away oh, from wow. the metal ball. And the pollinators don't fly very far. So uh, you would not expect these long distance genetic connections if it was just natural dispersal. Right. Right. I mean, even given the time frame we're talking about here, it's it's amazing how little plants move, even though they have mechanisms to get them other places, uh, generally, generationally at least. But yeah, when you start to see that evidence of tampering, and I'm not saying that in a negative connotation, but there is a human hand involved in the history of this plant. And so how many more populations, how far up the peninsula did you go? And, and do you see sort of like is there a way to kind of map out the trajectory of where this plant went over time or was there some ad hoc mixing later on in the history, you know, with colonization and stuff like that? Yeah, I think um, for the extant plants uh, and we sampled it from throughout the peninsula all the way up to, uh, you know, where the bend of Florida is up yeah. north, all the way down to Southern Miami-Dade County um, throughout the peninsula, all those long distance connections really point at Crystal River. Um, but has there been admixture since then? Probably. I imagine there has been. I think that, you know, the history of Florida has a lot of interesting uh, movements of people. And uh, the plant has not been used extensively as a food source for about the last hundred years. Mm. But prior to that, it was. And that's the other fascinating thing is just to think about the more modern history of its use. Uh, the, these were actually extracted from the environment at an industrial scale uh, at, in the late 19th century early 20th century. And that peaked in just about the year 1926. Hmm. Uh, they were removing so many of these from the environment. Uh, that's when it nearly became extirpated. But there was a whole industry built around this and people uh, locally and in other markets were eating this product called Florida arrowroot. Whoa. It was a starch and uh, sold, sold many places. Huh. And so it was sort of adapted and industrialized and then forgotten <laughs> i mean because yeah. i haven't heard that thrown around in a while but exactly i mean you know you, you read about things and you never hear about this product nobody eats it anymore uh but it was it was a big deal at one point and uh that's why there were so few for a while wow. uh, that's why small in 1920 said it was hard to find uh but nowadays uh the big success story it's come back you go to certain places in Florida, and it, it's literally a carpet in the underfloor. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite populations is in Tomoka State Park, and it's literally you're walking through a forest of these things. It, it's remarkable. It's really come back well. I mean, that's excellent. And what's great about that, beside just the ecological uh, aspect of it, is the fact that now this story is so much more meaningful. This isn't something that it happened. It was an interesting finding, but it's forgotten because it'll never be again. This is a story that connects a much deeper thread to what Florida once was compared to what it is today. And I think that's really important to do in the plant world because everyone needs something to get them interested in the subject. And the story of this, this tiny little cycad from North America uh, really has a ton of threads that run through its its whole history. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that, that that's what I really love about the plant. There's so many interesting aspects to it. You can think about it from the ecological side, from the historical side, from the economic side. I mean, it's it's really amazing. Yeah. And so where do you hope to see work with Zamia or at least your end of the research side of Zamia go from here? So the team is now uh, thinking about uh, the big overall picture of 
phylogeography of Zamia in the region. So nice. we're working on that, thinking about uh, using the same sorts of techniques we used uh, for a recent study, but applying it to you know the big broad data set, just to think about you know how where these plants came from, how they're related to each other, and, and something we'd love to do is to tackle the very complex taxonomy of this group. Uh, Zamia tegrifolia, I imagine that name's going to be with us uh, forever, but it, it's so complex because for just that name, we have it here in Florida, but there's plants in Cuba and plants in the Bahamas that go by that name. Hmm. But they, they don't appear to be related. So we need to sort that out and it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, can't say I'm jealous of the effort, but I'm really excited for the results. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, and so with that in mind, if people want to keep their finger on the pulse of this work or what's going on at the Montgomery Botanical Center, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah, so, you know, the most uh, commonly or uh, frequently updated uh, news source for us is uh, we post on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, we got a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, very easy to find us. Our website, uh, I want to recommend as well. It's a very, very rich resource. We put basically anything that we produce, we put it on that website and it goes back many decades. Lots and lots of good reading on that. Wonderful. I love hearing that. And I will save everyone the trouble by putting up links in the show notes for this. But Dr. Griffith, thank you so much for kind of peeling back the layers on an obscure group of plants, but also one that has a story that connects, you know, the people of this land that have been here for thousands of years and, and tells a story that stretches many thousands more. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. It has absolutely been my pleasure. Honestly, I could talk about Zamia for hours and hours and hours. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Awesome. Well, hey, don't threaten me with a good time. You are welcome back on. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to set up a schedule to get you back on to talk more about Zamia and all the other work you do. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Of course. All right. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. I thank Dr. Griffith for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I hope you will go check the show notes for this episode because that is where I put all of the relevant links, all of the writings and information the Montgomery Botanical Center puts out are well worth your time. So go check those out over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But what a cool little plant. You can go and see them quite readily in Florida today. They are landscaped all over the place. You can even buy them at many box stores. It is a conservation success story in a lot of ways, but it's also a fascinating historical tale that spans deep time and human history. So check the plant out as well if you haven't already. Of course, shows like this would not be possible without all of my wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash plants who help keep this show running with their financial contributions each and every month. In fact, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Dan, Alex, Ella, and Patty. All of them signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the kickbacks you can possibly get, which includes this wonderful resume boosting credit. So thank you again to each one of them. There is no way I could be doing this without support from my patrons. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our merch, or stickers. And all of those links can also be found at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.